Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another bonus episode. I'm here with Stephen Chin from JFrog. Stephen, do you want to say hi and tell everybody why you're famous, and then we'll uh, jump in and talk about some uh, security stuff? Yeah, good, good to be back on your show, Chuck. And I, I hope I'm, I'm not too famous or infamous for the wrong <laughs> right. reason. Um, I, I am a, a serial book author. Um, the most recent one was a book called um, DevOps Tools for, for Java Developers by O'Reilly. So kind of bringing best practices to, to Java developers as things shift left. We want to be able to make it easier for them to, to do the right things. Um, I, I'm very well known in um, conferences around the world, like Keynote or um, the Java community, um, and um, increasingly in other developer communities as well. One of the projects we're going to talk about is written entirely from the ground up in Rust, which is mm. um, an awesome language and the most loved language according to the Stack Overflow survey, which just came out. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, lots of, lots of fun stuff. Good deal. Well, we're, we're talking today about supply chain security and you know, this is one of those topics that I think either freaks people out or, you know, they kind of look at it and go, wait, that that could be happening to me. And, you know, as we kind of get into, you know, the packages or systems that people use to build their applications and, uh, you know, how do you trust? Who do you trust? I mean, we've covered on our various shows instances where, you know, somebody pulled in a package that turned out to have been compromised or, you know, pulled down a Docker file as the basis for their app that uh, turned out to, you know, have some compromised software on it. Or, you know, there was a zero day that comes out, you know, afterward and it's like, oh, now I've got to go and, you know, rebuild my entire infrastructure. So, so how do you start, how do you even start um, dealing with this kind of thing? And, you know, then we can kind of, get into this project that you've been telling me about that, that helps handle this, but yeah. So I, I think, um, obviously so, so in general security and securing software systems is a, is a pretty deep area. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that one big change which has happened recently is historically, um, a lot of the focus of attackers was on attacking enterprises, companies, Mm-hmm. They'd get in through your firewall. They would find various ways to like go through your your exploits on websites, um, right. and, and get into your your systems directly. And I, I think what's changed in the past couple of years is um, the attackers have realized that they they don't need to go in the front door. Um, most software companies have developers. Developers have a lot of access to to build to deploy software, and if you can attack the developers working on the software, that gives you an entry point into organizations. And so now, like like us as software developers or folks working on DevOps or enterprise systems, we're now the um, the entry point, and the the we're, we're under fire from the hackers, and they're turning over all sorts of interesting but scary attacks against the infrastructure we depend upon. Mm-hmm. Um, so some examples of this um, are um, the central repositories, which we, we download from. So Docker Hub, Maven Central, NPM, mm-hmm. RubyGems, PyPy, etc. 
Yep. Um, they've all suffered um, from various exploits, ranging from just people testing stuff out to like nefarious code targeting specific companies. And um, we we recently found an exploit in in npm, which we of course um, disclosed um, to Microsoft, gave them a chance to fix it before it was publicly disclosed. But um, they they were there was an organization specifically uploading um, packages, which looked like Azure core packages, mm-hmm. um, just missing missing the namespace prefix. So they were typo squatting. And as a developer, if you left off the the prefix and accidentally just imported by name, you would get the wrong package. You would get a malicious right. package. And that would give them um, access points to to your company's software. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's worse than just it's worse than just you know them trying to like you know steal steal your credit card or steal something like that as a consumer. They what they really want is they want access to to what you have as gold keys as a developer, which is your company's assets, your the software right. you're building, access to enterprise systems. Um, another example of this was. Um, we found an example um, of a dependency injection attack, which was targeted specifically at um, an organization. And again, um, this one was also funneled through NPM. Um, for for the, the viewers who don't know what a dependency injection attack is, um, basically the, the idea is if if you can figure out what packages companies are using internally, their internal namespace, so, um, you know, com dot, you know, your, your, your favorite company name. Um, and they know that you have certain packages internally with certain, you know, certain versions. What they do is they, they go to NPM, which basically just lets you willy nilly upload whatever you want. If it isn't already there, they pick your internal corporate package name. They upgrade the version to, you know, com dot your favorite company name version 999 which of course mm-hmm. is probably newer than what you're using internally and if you're if you're using software which is not picky about where it gets its dependencies from then you instead of downloading from the local repository you'll download to from npm the the latest version mm-hmm. of your corporate package which of course will be malware and will do horrible things inside your corporate network and in the case of NPM, you can just execute it directly on package install. You don't even have to run the software. Just so simply by pulling the dependency, your computer's been compromised and it becomes an attack point for a dedicated attacker into your corporate network. And it, it's interesting too, because they'll like sometimes it's you know, it's relatively easy if you open it up to spot, but sometimes it'll have like some package that it decrypts and then executes and or they'll hide no, it in actually, different they're, ways. They're really they're really good at this. So in the case of um, um, JavaScript, what they'll do is they'll obfuscate all the code. Yeah. So you can't, you, you can't even read it or decipher it. Um, you'd have to de-obfuscate it. You'd, you'd have to basically figure out exactly what it was trying to do, which is usually pretty obtuse. It executes random um, strings. And our, our security team, Spent quite a lot of time coming up with some some filters, custom scanning software, and doing automated searches and central repositories simply to protect our own customers. Because the last thing we want is 
um, JFrog customers to be compromised by breaches in central repositories mm-hmm. that we could update our security database to defend them against. Yeah, the point I was trying to make essentially was that um, the amateur stuff you can sometimes find on your own, but most of the time they've got it buried somewhere and it's it's tricky to figure out exactly what's going on or what's going to get run. And yeah, obfuscation is a way of doing it. I've seen some pretty interesting things creep in sometimes, you know, where they find it and they're like, yeah, well, it, you know, it, it was hidden here and that was accessed through this. Right. And so you would just, you would never see it looking at the code yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to identify. Um, actually some of the worst security exploits, AKA solar winds were found yeah. by the, after the exploit happens while there was data being exfiltrated for, by the companies um so once it gets to that point that's really bad you you hopefully want to catch it before you um before you get infected before you have a, a an open door to the attacker solar winds was in their build system so it was it wasn't even in like the dependencies they were pulling in per se it was it was coming in a completely different way there too yeah yeah so solar winds it it was in their case they were running Team City, although it could have been any CI/CD system, their mm-hmm. internal infrastructure got hacked, and they they modified the binaries right before signing. After they, like it went through the full build process, they injected some code, and then it was signed by SolarWinds mm-hmm. and then distributed downstream. But I, I think the thing from there is for anyone downstream from SolarWinds, they got a signed binary, yeah. which SolarWinds had had their signature on and Mm -hmm. if you use that as a dependency in internal packages you're just like you're you're dead so so yeah so how do you know who to trust then okay so that's an excellent question so the 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 best answer of course is you don't trust (laughs) why trust when you can verify um yeah but I, i don't have time for that right well okay so if if you if you're a mega enterprise a la google and microsoft Mm-hmm. Um, you, you do have time for it because you, yeah, you probably have an internal team which downloads and builds everything that you require internally as a dependency from source code so that you, you're absolutely sure that what you're running is exactly what it says it is because you built it internally on your you know secure cluster directly from source. And then if you work in a company like that, then... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's obviously security practices, standards, right. and repos which you're supposed to use, but you you're insulated by the sheer weight and resources of you as an organization. Mm-hmm. But the the thought behind Project Persia, which is a, a new open source project that we kicked off and um, are joined by a bunch of great partners, including Docker, Oracle, FutureWay, um, right. DeployHub, Huawei, and others, is we should provide this same sort of um, build from source infrastructure to the masses. And in a way where you can get any open source package from a a decentralized repository where you're not trusting any single company, you basically, what you're trusting is that the everybody's built it. They verified it against each other. And what you're downloading is exactly what you would get if you built it off source yourself without having to do all the hard work. That makes sense. So, yeah. And so Project Persia, by the way, uh, for people who are listening at home, we'll have links in the show notes, but it's P-Y-R-S-I-A. 
io is where you can get more info so so what exactly is it doing for me then right you said it's it's building it as though it was built in kind of a, a i guess an environment that would be akin to where i'm yeah anyway yeah, yeah. so so it's doing a, a couple things so um when you look at the primary use case for it so the first and foremost it's security mm-hmm. um, open source supply chain security and um, what you're getting from the Persia network is you're getting libraries which are built by the network. So there's um, authorized nodes which are run by all of the member companies. They mm-hmm. they build the software from source. They verify it against each other. And then you're downloading that verified package from the network. So um, in that way, you're getting a more secure version then even if you, for example, got it from a, a local company service, which is building from source, because this is verified by multiple different corporations. So you're getting kind of, you know, a, 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 a highly secure verified binary mm-hmm. output. Um, the second thing you're getting is a reliable distribution network for those binaries. So um, we didn't talk much about this, but... Um, even NPM, which is now hosted by Microsoft and was notoriously bad for having huge outages and downtime, which affected developers worldwide. Um, even after the, the acquisition by Microsoft, it, it, it goes down about once a month for short periods of time. And um, anytime you have a central service like, like NPM, PyPy, RubyGems, Docker, mm-hmm. Docker Hub going down for even a short window... That's like a DDoS against the whole developer community, your CI, CD servers, everything which you have upstream, which has dependencies on that. So the second thing we believe in really strongly is reliability. Um, the network should be always available. It should be um, replicated. It should be um, distributed and peer-to-peer. And there should be no single point of failure in, in the network where... Um, you have 100% uptime and availability of, of all the artifacts, which which exist and um, the ability to get them and supply your, your CI CD pipelines um, without any interruption. Um, and the final thing, and I, you know, when we talk about open source, like there's a lot of central repositories, which give you open source, but they're not actually open source systems. Right. Mm-hmm. And, for for you to trust, for you to verify um, where you're getting it from and, and how, how the security of the system you're getting it from, it, it has to be open, right? You, 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 Whatever the infrastructure is running, it has to be all open source software. It has to be in, a, in a, a project where you can verify the software which is running. You can, you can run it yourself to, to see how it operates. And everyone in the network is running the the um that open source software which supplies the net the builds to you and in this way with the entire system being open having high reliability and being secure this this kind of gives you that next generation um uh, central repository system which will um give open source software the best distribution and the most secure distribution platform for you, even as an open source author to, to release and distribute your code. That makes sense. How, how does the verification work? So there, there's a couple different ways which we're doing verification. Um, 
the the happy case is when you if you are um building a project which supports reproducible builds mm-hmm. where you can build the project uh, multiple times and it will always give you exactly the same binary output which is um byte for byte or hash equivalent right um then all the nodes in the network will build it they'll verify the hash and you're you're happy you go off and and verify it um the second case is um so we we're working on some semantic verifiers for for different languages technologies and platforms where it can do smarter verification of the output binary to handle cases where um for example there's there's embedded paths or timestamps or um, mm-hmm. or magic numbers or other things where we can safely determine that these two binaries are actually the same thing even though for example, the the ordering of the compression algorithm right. didn't do exactly the same thing on the second run. So, um, in cases where we can do smarter semantic verification to help verify things which are not fully reproducible, that also gives us a high guarantee. Um, there will be cases where things are just not reproducible because um, maybe some of the, the compiler, the low level. Um, technologies mm-hmm. or like specific um, language or technologies are are more difficult. In particular, like we we also run Conan Center, which is the um, the largest and most widely used C and C plus plus module system and package manager. Um, and C and C plus plus libraries are very very hard to to get fully right. reproducible builds on. And so, in the case where we can't get a fully reproducible build, we'll still build a network and we'll do some verification of the build output and things which we can check and we'll supply a a binary which we we believe to be um reasonably secure from a random node in the build infrastructure um and of course have the full signatures tracing and like um ability to construct s bombs and software build materials so you know exactly where that binary came from and who who built it and who authorized it right that makes sense um, I, I guess the other thing, and this kind of goes back to, and, and I, I know the answer to this cause we've already talked about it before the show, but, um, you know, if it's all, you know, if you're storing all this stuff, Hey, this was built, this was checked, it was verified, all this stuff goes on. Um, how do you avoid the issue that you have with an NPM or Ruby gems or whatever, where they all have a single point where all that information is stored yeah so what what i mean besides just distributing the packages across right. the network um we are also decentralizing the the metadata store okay about um the audit history of packages the metadata about packages um like the verification of which nodes are authorized to, to work in the network and um, we're using a, a decentralized immutable transparency ledger um of course the the best technology for doing decentralized transparency ledgers is is blockchain um which gives you a guarantee that um you can verify the entire set of blocks that compose the blockchain um cryptographically to make sure that um there have been no changes or forgeries or um um, nothing has been added fraudulently to the network Mm -hmm. now Blockchain is is a somewhat controversial subject. <laughs> um, 
it actually, it, it, interestingly enough, it was the only technology which they, they added a new section to the Stack Overflow survey this year. And they wanted to take polls on technologies. And there's one technology mentioned, and it's blockchain. And it was mm-hmm. like almost split 50-50 between people who, who loved it and, and thought it was the best technology ever to people which abhorrently hated it and thought that it, it was the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. Now, they weren't actually debating on blockchain. What they were debating on was was cryptocurrencies. Right. Um, I am, I am um, not a big fan of things which... Um, we're, we're using which consume the same amount of power as I think Bitcoin consumes the the same amount of power as last time I checked the country of Austria, which is <laughs> abhorrent. <laughs> but um, there actually are some legitimate and not power wasteful usages for blockchain technology, which underlies cryptocurrencies, which is what people actually hate. So. Blockchain as a technology um, mm-hmm. basically consists of a ledger. And so, you know, a, a ledger is is pretty much what all systems which are storing like logs and histories of information um, need. And the fact that you're doing it in blocks, which refer to the previous blocks, organized in a way where it's immutable. So mm-hmm. any immutable ledger is basically a blockchain at the core. And on top of that, to add things to the blockchain reliably, you need a consensus algorithm. Right. Um, so you, you have a bunch of choices and consensus algorithms, the Bitcoin and, and the reason why it's so power hungry is they use a, a proof of work consensus algorithm, mm-hmm. which, you know, it incentivizes people to do more work and incentivizes, um, Chinese miners to do a whole lot of work. And you waste a huge amount of commute compute to get your security guarantees. Um, in Persia, we're using... Um, what's called proof of authority. And basically it's, um, we, we have a set of, of authorized corporate nodes. So all the, all the member companies, which I mentioned before, are going to be running um, their own set of nodes. Um, so you'll mm-hmm. end up with, rather than millions of nodes like Bitcoin, you'll end up with um, maybe 100 at most. And those authorized nodes are all the only ones which participate in consensus. So... A, you don't have to do fancy computationally intensive algorithms to figure out who can participate. It's it's mm-hmm. by the, the companies which are backing the network. Um, and B, um, even the, the blockchain algorithms themselves don't run globally. They just run on a on a small set of nodes which get to consensus. But what this this gives you as a an end consumer is there, there's two interesting outcomes of consensus algorithms which make the Perseid network unique so the first one and the most obvious one is security mm-hmm. so you in a using a byzantium fault tolerant algorithm or bft for short the the guarantee is to to process a transaction you need two-thirds consensus Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, an attacker would have to take over two thirds plus right. one nodes on the network to um, to put in a, a bad a, a bad transaction. So that that's a pretty strong guarantee. If you're basically pulling down open source libraries, and you're guaranteed that two thirds of the companies have all agreed on this, and an attacker would have had to simultaneously hack you know, like a a dozen different corporate networks simultaneously. That's a pretty high bar. 
if they have that, they have much better targets than hacking random open source projects. <laughs> right. But the second guarantee, and I, I think this is one which is understated, but is a huge benefit of um, consensus algorithms, is the network will continue operating even if it's compromised. Right. So, for example, if you had an algorithm which was simply everybody agrees, then all the attacker would need to do is take over one node, mm -hmm. block all transactions from going through, and you've essentially done a DDoS on the network. Right. Um, with with um, BFT consensus algorithms, your, your guarantee is as long as the attacker doesn't take over a third of the network nodes, um, the, the network throughput remains constant. And you continue processing transactions with zero degradation. And technically, transactions will still go through up to up to two thirds is where like they actually can take down the network entirely. Right. So you you're getting a really high security guarantee for the network, but you're also getting a really high reliability guarantee where um, even if somebody wanted to take down the Persia network, they a they would have to compromise at least a third of the um, authorized nodes to, to stop, slow down the transactions. And B, since everything's distributed via peer-to-peer -peer technologies, they wouldn't be able to stop you from getting the libraries which are already committed to the network. So I guess the other piece of this is, is what are you going to put on it? I mean, are, are you going to have libraries from all of the different places we're used to getting them from like npm or um ruby gems or PyPy, or is it just going to be what people submit is it going to include i don't know like docker images yeah okay so, how deep so does it go for, first thing like there, there isn't a concept of submission in persia because everything's uh -huh. built from source okay so it's it's what people request not what people submit if you request something which isn't built then it gets built from source the second thing is we're, we're also we want to create the lowest barrier of entry for for using the system as possible for developers and and devops admins so um for each ecosystem we're targeting we're we're making sure to to make the tooling and the installation and the integration as transparent as possible um, so our first supported integration is with Docker. Mm -hmm. So we we integrate with the Docker command line tools. It's it's gotcha. set up as a simple mirror, so you can access. You can simply update the the Docker mirror, point it to your your local Percy install, and it will magically work. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's of course going into the peer to peer network, but it sets up a local proxy, so all of the Docker software um, just sees it like any other mm -hmm. repository. And it makes it equally easy as a developer or somebody who's like updating a CI/CD pipeline to um, to integrate Percy and use it for cloud native builds. So our first use case is the is the Docker ecosystem um, and the cloud native ecosystem for for Docker and Kubernetes images. Mm -hmm. um, we um, have an initial version of this as a as a beta you can try out today. It's a it's a fully functional peer to peer system. Um, the build from source isn't implemented yet, but our partner Docker is supplying all of their official images, and there's there's zero rate limiting or throttling. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're if you're in a situation where like 
you or your company has been rate limited or throttled by by Docker in pulling down images, you can just drop our um, Persia beta, plug it in place for um, Docker Hub, and then go ahead and pull all the official images you want from the peer-to-peer network and, okay. and go hog wild. Interesting. And the, the, the plan is also to support, um, the next one we're focusing on is Java, because again, mm-hmm. Oracle is one of our um, strategic partners on this. Uh, we plan to support, you know, JavaScript, Rust, of course, since Percy is written entirely in Rust, um, Go, Python, Ruby, etc. So the, the goal mm-hmm. is to to broaden support, but for each ecosystem we support, um, we want it to be transparent, we want it to be seamless, we want it to be something easy for developers to adopt, so we're being intentional about which ones which we support and when. Uh, you keep mentioning peer-to-peer, so... How does that work? So if I install it on my system, it it would go find out who else out there has a Persia instance and would just pull stuff from them instead of going to a central location and saying, hey, I need all the stuff. Yeah, exactly. So um, the, the, way, the way Persia's distribution network works is we're um, using libp2p is the, the underlying mm-hmm. um, peer-to-peer protocol. And it's the same library used by, for example, IPFS, um, okay. the interplanetary file system. And the way it works is the, the authorized nodes have all the packages which are available. So that gives mm-hmm. you 100% availability of all the Docker images or you know whatever Java jars or whatever we support in the network. When you download and use a package, you you pull it off the the peer to peer network. So it uses a discovery protocol um, over um, um, what should we call it? Uh, in, initially, it does. Um, oh, I'm forgetting the packet types for for not TCP, but the other type UDP. Yeah, UDP. So it does some UDP discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it will fall back and it will it will pick up one of the authorized nodes if it has trouble doing local discovery. Um, so it can tunnel through firewalls to a limited extent. And it will connect to other Persia nodes to, to allow you to download from multiple different peers simultaneously. Right. Um, anything which you download is by default also being um, shared and available to other Persia mm-hmm. nodes. But um, you're never pushed any content which you didn't want to get initially. So only what you download is what you have locally. Right. And um, also you can, you can disable that if you don't want to reshare in the network. So I guess the question I have then is, is how do I know I can trust my peers? Um, you, you don't trust your peers, but you trust the blockchain. Okay. Oh, and I see. I have a copy of the blockchain. So I have a way exactly. of verifying what I got. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Huh. Uh. So, you, what, what you pull off the network, you of course verify using the, the immutable transaction right. ledger, the blockchain, and that way you know that the, the bits you pulled off the network from random places are exactly what you wanted to get because you can right. verify it off the blockchain. So, yeah, so, I mean, essentially, we're we're building out something which um, I, I think, like a, a lot of other um, package management systems and projects have have thought about or experimented in doing kind of a, a futuristic web three O decentralized distribution mechanism. And at, at JFrog, I mean, we're, we're 
experts and repository managers in, in different package ecosystems. So we're, we're kind of pushing forward this vision to make technology, which would probably take the next 10 years for it to develop and, and happen organically in the mm-hmm. open source ecosystem. And we're making it happen essentially now. We're, we're pushing forward this technology and building what we see as the, the vision and the way people are going to get open source software a decade from now. So how did this all get started? Well, this is, was my bad idea. <laughs> um, and, and I think it, it, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out around this time last year. So we started the project, at least thinking wise, about a little, maybe a year and a half ago. Um, so I was trying to figure out what the right way that the open source ecosystem could support themselves mm-hmm. in distributing and securing uh, packages because I'm a big believer in open source. Um, I've written a bunch of open source libraries myself and like anything, the thought that I would take, for example, you know, my, my, my own open source libraries, my Docker images or other things, upload them to a central repository. And the, the owner of that central repository would, throttle or potentially try to monetize on my open source mm-hmm. code is as, as an open source author that's that's horrible like you you, yeah. you want you just want your software to be available to be obviously secure and to be free because you're doing it in your spare time or or you you know kind of on uh, out of the goodness of of your your company's effort to let you work on things um and so i if you want to build something which is a free and secure distribution network, um, the obvious leap here is you you look at Web three O technologies like like IPFS, like blockchain as as kind of the building blocks to to build and secure your open source software. And um, I think this sort of system we're building on Persia came out of that thought line, which mm-hmm. was how how can we build this free, open, distributed, secure infrastructure, which is going to last beyond any company, beyond any individual. And it, it can be sustained by the open source community into perpetuity. And I think that this is, this is a hard problem to solve. Like, um, think about how reliant on the whole open source ecosystem is, for example, on, on Microsoft and GitHub. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's an awesome service. It's the best Git repository for open source projects it has awesome tooling and workflows and they've really taken an advanced source control but if github went away tomorrow because microsoft lost interest that would that would be a huge blow to yeah open source projects globally so like i think something important to think about is is how do you how do you make open source sustainable and this actually is is one of the reasons why we're taking Persia and we're donating it, or well, we're discussing donating it to the Continuous Delivery Foundation, which is part of the Linux Foundation. Because foundations like the Linux Foundation, their their mission is to make open source sustainable. They specifically target making things vendor neutral, so there's no single mm-hmm. company or, um, um, or or organization behind it, and that's really critical for long-term sustainability of open source because um, companies come and go, 
um, individuals come and go, but open source software, it's, it's depended on by large organizations and projects. It is built into systems which are designed to last for decades or longer. And you mm-hmm. just need that, that um, sustainability and those guarantees that it's, it's going to be available, it's going to be free, it's going to be supported, it's going to be secure. And I think those are the things which um, Persia helps the open source ecosystem to realize. So what, I guess you've kind of talked about your plan going forward. So, um, and I'm, I'm thinking through like, you know, JFrog and what you all do with Artifactory and things like that, or, um, you know, some of the other folks out there and what, you know, what, what we all deal with just being out on the internet and building software in, in today's ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I really like the idea. I re- love the direction that it's going as far as like, yeah, having that decentralized, trustless. I, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to trust you. I don't have to trust you know any of the other companies you've listed, like Docker or Oracle or anybody else. And you know, even if I trust you now, I mean, we've seen companies that they get new leadership or they get the wrong mm-hmm. person in the wrong place, and it's a problem. And so, yeah, just being able to go, okay, um, you know, this this is how this all works. And so, you know, I yeah, can yeah, see no, where this I, solves a lot of those problems. Yeah, so I, I think that this is kind of a vision which which I came up with. I've gotten a lot of great support from mm-hmm. the, the leadership at JFrog. So the, the three co-founders, Shlomi, Yoav, and Fred have been just awesome. Um, Fred's actually our executive sponsor mm-hmm. on the on the Persia project, and um, it, you know I think Persia solves this open source supply chain problem um, kind of at the root in open source projects and in the distribution of open source projects. But there is there is a second level problem, um, which is just the software supply chain problem, where right. now now you're in a company, now you have um, proprietary commercial software, which you also need to know how to securely build and distribute right. and and maintain. And I think that as a company, that's what JFrog's mission is. Right. Um, to have the best enterprise repository managers, enterprise security scanning, enterprise distribution. And like we, we solve those problems really elegantly for companies. But mm-hmm. I think we, we also want to help the larger open source ecosystem to solve those at scale. Yeah, I worked for a company that used uh, Artifactory for their builds. And Yep, uh, yep. Yeah. No, you, you all did a good job. He was a visionary back, was it 15 years ago when he wrote yeah. Artifactory um, himself? And he's still he's still CTO of JFrog, so he's, he's awesome. Good deal. So if people want to go pick up Persia... Is it Persia? Persia? Persia. Yeah, it's a, it's a reference to um, the Greek system for long-range communication using torches okay. mm-hmm. on mountaintops. Okay. So like pyro for fire, and they would line up 10 torches, two, two sets of five torches, light them up in different orders, and that would map to a, a five-by-five grid, which had the Greek alphabet. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, but let's say that I'm getting into this and, um, I, I, I want to keep tabs on, okay, you know, are you picking up whatever technology stack I use and B, you know, you mentioned that Docker's a set of, of, uh, builds is already in there. 
So how how do I start using this? How do I start pulling putting it on my machine and running it? Yeah, so um, just go to persia.io, P-Y-R-S-I-A. Um, we have a link there to try out the the beta version of Persia, mm-hmm. which you can you can download and install now. Um, it basically what it does is it runs a little peer to peer node on your system. Um, you set up your Docker environment. There's there's install uh, setup instructions on the website as well, so that it will pull from Persia instead of from Docker Hub. Mm-hmm. And then you you start pulling down official images off this peer to peer network, which gives you. Um, higher availability, no throttling, better right. throughput for pulling Docker images. And in the future, we'll give you um, built from source, highly secure um, Docker images, Java jars, JavaScript modules, Go modules, Rust modules, etc. All right. Well, I'm just going to encourage people to go check it out. It's definitely something that I plan to do. Um, and just, yeah, see see where we can take this. Because... I, I really like a lot of the principles behind this, and I think it's a great way to go um, as we move forward into kind of this next stage of the internet and development and, you know, handling some of these things that are, yeah, directed at us, to be perfectly honest. Yep, cool, and thanks for having me as a as a guest again, Chuck. Always great to yeah, hang out absolutely. with you and chat about stuff. So if, yeah, we, we asked how to keep tabs on Persia, but if people want to connect with you or ask you a question, where do they do that? Um, so yeah, just find me on Twitter at Steve on Java. Oh, that's easy. Easy to easy easy to find, easy to poke, and you know, DM me or you know, at me on a message, and I'm I'm happy to answer questions or or just chat with folks. Yep. So one last question: um, Do you want to just give a quick pitch for JFrog and what y'all do over there? Yeah. So I mean, I'm, I'm the VP of DevRel developer relations at jfrog so i get to do all the fun community stuff Mm -hmm. um like this or like open source projects like persia or the phone and package manager but um i mean we we basically build um a devops platform the jfrog platform which is best known for artifactory but I, i think probably the thing which i'm most excited about is the fact that we with the acquisition of Vidu, with all the announcements we made at Swamp Up, we, we really have the leading edge security platform for binary management. Cool. All right. Well, um, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up, folks. Uh, thanks for coming. This was really cool, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing where this goes. Yeah, yeah no, this is the exciting stuff, and you, I think you're on the you're on the bleeding edge of this. So <laughs> hopefully you get a lot of folks excited about this, and then we can do a follow-up once, once it gets a lot of adoption and traction. Yep. Sounds good. All right, folks. Well, until next time, Max out.